ready? Did you get a candy bar? Yes, we got. Okay, good. You can be seated. I'm just moving this out of the way to uh, avoid temptation during my message. So we are in a series, and we're moving through the book of 
uh, Samuel. It's First and Second Samuel in your English Bibles. And we're in chapter 16 again this week. We did the first half last week, second half this week. And uh, I had someone last week come up to me and say, what are you going to talk about in chapter 16? The first part is like, okay, that's fine, David getting anointing, but the next part is crazy. And it's like really weird. And it is. It's one of these very strange stories that when we read, it might really, we could stretch our imagination so much and it, it becomes very hard to figure out how does this apply to my life today? Um, and yet this is part of the work that, you know, a pastor does, is that I steep in the text and I read super wise, informed people who have come before me and I compile things and I maybe bring things uh, in front of the community that is it's just hard to do, maybe on our own or if we don't have access to the same kind of resources that I do. So I hope today is going to be a blessing to you. Um, the first thing that I want you to note about this second section of chapter 16 is that um, there's a break between David's anointing and coming to, uh, to serve Saul, which is what we're looking at in verses 14 to 23 today. So even before we go get to the first verse, there's actually a really important lesson here. Often the Bible uh, can, uh, just obviously condenses stories and weeks or months and years are missed. And that, if we're not attuned to that, we can then read the Bible and assume that uh, you know, when God's at work or when things are happening, it's just like bam, 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 it's one domino after the other. And the first thing that I want us to be attentive to is in verses 1 to 13, God sends Samuel to anoint David, and David is selected out the least of his brothers. His, he's not even invited to the, to the feast, in, in a sense, the, the anointing, and yet he's chosen. And then after he's chosen, life just goes back to normal for a while. We don't know how for how long, but it really doesn't matter how long. Even if you think it's a few weeks or a few months before he's invited into Saul's service, I think there's a really important principle there, which is, in this instance, God anoints David, and he says, I've selected you to be the new king. And narratively, what we might assume is, oh, okay, well, the next step is somehow David's going to make a big step toward kingship. But he's sent back into the fields. And he's just like a normal shepherd boy again for days or certainly weeks or maybe months, maybe even a year or two. And I think that's really helpful for us because sometimes if we have a powerful experience of God or we have a sense that um, there's, a, there's a breakthrough happening in our lives or maybe we just have this deep sense of calling, sometimes we believe that, well, so something's going to happen soon then. And what this story teaches me, this pause in between these stories, is that I need to be patient. God's timing doesn't work like mine. We live in a microwave culture where we assume step one and two and three and four should all be moved, uh, compressed together as quickly as possible, and we can get impatient. And God's timing is something that throughout all of these stories in Samuel, we want to be attentive to and then reflect on our own journey and say, maybe where am I being impatient with God in a certain area of my life? Because I really felt like God started to do something here or did something here, but then life went back to normal. But this story teaches us that that doesn't mean that God's not in it. That doesn't mean that God isn't at work. That doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. Often there's a time of separation between a calling to do something and then when there is the kind of 
practical, logistical on-ramp into it. And in between those things is a time of preparation. If nothing else, to just wait on God, learning to be faithful in little things and continue to do what is in front of you to do, even if, for David, he realizes, I've been called to something higher than just tending sheep. He doesn't let his ego get, a, get ahead of him. He's like, well, that door will open up when God opens it. For now, I'll be the best shepherd boy that I can. So as we move into 1 Samuel 16 and 14, understand that there's that break there. There's that pause, reading between the lines, and let that teach us that sometimes God moves, and then there's kind of a regular rhythm for a while. And that's totally, totally okay. We need the trust to just keep showing up in our everyday responsibilities. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So Saul's the king. Saul's attendant said to him, Look, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre, and he will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and then you'll feel better. And so Saul says to his attendants, he agrees and he says, find someone who can play well and then bring him here to serve me. So we want to kind of pause here because these opening verses, we're really sensitized to um, wanting, I think, rightly so, to be careful around God being the orchestrator of evil or facilitating evil and there's big conversations around God's sovereignty and what does that look like in cooperation with free will. Um, But there's been lots of interpretations, as you can imagine, both Jewish and Christian, around what does this mean that God withdrew his spirit from Saul, but then sent another spirit. It's not his spirit, it's from him, though, to torment Saul. And Depending on the background that you're in, a lot of uh, people try and psychologize this and say, well, that was a way of ancient Israel talking about mental illness, and so they just called mental illness a a torment from the Lord. But I think there's good reason to understand what Saul is experiencing and what's going to carry over into the next few chapters as both a theological and a psychological problem. It's, It's not as, you can't reduce it to one thing as is often the case with with, um, many of the hardships that we go through. Saul is experiencing, and we're going to see him continue to experience, a growing alienation. God has communicated to Samuel that Saul's reign is coming to an end. He's raising up a new king. Saul wants to hold on to that kingship, as we're going to see. But in doing so, and in not surrendering to God's will, he's going to further and further retract from God, from other people, from a sense of integrity and an alignment to his own values. This spirit, which is called evil, is somewhat ambiguous in the Hebrew, and it can mean injurious or bad spirit. And uh, some translations will even go so far as to translate it as a gloomy outlook or a bad mood. But we're supposed to understand something from this text. We don't just drop into this text and say, oh, why would God send a... Uh, an injurious or gloomy spirit over Saul. Remember what's happened in the previous chapters. Saul has consistently rejected God's leadership and authority in his life. 
He's the first king of Israel. He's supposed to be leading in a way that is faithful to God and then mirrors that faithfulness into the world. And he hasn't been doing that. So God retracts his spirit and the conduit of his blessing from Saul. And then God allows another tormenting spirit. And, you know, again, there's a spectrum of how literal that's to be understood in this circumstance. But it definitely is something that God allows as an intentional hardship in Saul's life. It's a kind of judgment. God is saying, oh, you don't want my protection? You don't want to be under my leadership? You, you don't want to serve my people as a king who serves? Okay. Then I'm going to retract my blessing, and I'm going to also retract protection from other forces within you, on the outside, that are coming to injure and disrupt and disorient. And so what you see is the spirit of Yahweh, a God represents this, the spirit from Yahweh, um, is this foreboding sense that Saul is moving inescapable, inescapably towards a kind of self-destruction. And Saul's story ends, unfortunately, really tragically. But again, this is coming from Saul, who's the first king in Israel, the first anointed king, his persistent, consistent insist insistence to um, hold God at bay, resist, reject God, pay lip service to God, kind of go through the motions, but not yield um, the authority of his heart to God. And I say that because sometimes people have looked at this passage, they've parachuted into it and said, oh, hmm, uh, some of the manifestations of this bad spirit looks like mental health and illness. And they make all kinds of what are just wild conjectures around, oh, well, I wonder if this is bipolar or some early stage of dissociative identity disorder or schizophrenia. And then they make jumps to, well, all mental health and illness must be from the Lord or from an injurious spirit. And this is where we have to be very, very careful to not go beyond what Scripture says. Um, what we understand to be mental health, the Bible doesn't really have a category for it would just refer to general uh, spiritual health. But we understand that there are a number of nested, complex factors that build into um, what we uh, label as mental health issues. And often, because we know, uh, as long as you're, I think, not living in any kind of denial, that you can be sincerely committed to God, following God as best you can as a Christian, as a believer, and still um, feel the effects and be under um, different challenges and the weight of different mental health burdens, um, that this isn't something that is just, in a sense, a judgment from God, and we can just speak with uh, confidence across the board that, oh, well, mental health is this. There are absolutely times, I believe, where a component, maybe even a large component of our mental health struggles, let's say around anxiety, or depression is either fueled or might be amplified or might be kind of mitigated or, or um, instigated by a failure to understand a full robustness of a theological truth about our status in Christ and what Christ has given us and the promises that are available to us. But to simply see mental health is issues as a theological problem in the sense that this person doesn't have enough faith, they're not praying enough, they're not going to church enough, it must be because there's a secret sin in someone's life, uh, that is a way that we should not 
understand or talk about mental illness and just overall wellness within the church. We have to move into nuance and complexity and we want to be really careful not to move into passages like this and in a sense um, amplify its message and generalize it to say, oh, well, that must be at the root of when other people find themselves down or depressed or under a, a, weight, um, a burdensome spirit. So we want to be really, really careful. The text, though, in this particular instance, does say that there is a supernatural dimension to this as a result of God's judgment against Saul. Our posture and response to those who are suffering and laboring under the weight of mental health issues in whatever way that manifests is not to look at a text like this and say, oh, uh, this kind of gives me insight and I can bypass psychologists and other wise people who have studied these things and, and nutritionists and, um, and, and I can just make this declaration that this is what is happening in this person's life. That's actually not our role 99% of the time unless we have that expertise to bring to the table. Our role is actually to serve as David did. And that's another thing I want us to understand. Sometimes we're, we jump too quickly to understanding, trying to figure out what's going on instead of saying, actually, if I'm involved in this person's life, I'm called to move towards them like David did. What does David do? He offers a gift, a skill that offers relief and relief from distress. And unfortunately, I have had too many conversations with people who are much more interested in trying to figure out what's really going on and uh, hyper-spiritualizing people's physical illnesses, mental illnesses, um, and then giving really minimal attention to actually coming alongside those people and caring for them and offering support. And so I see here a paradigm for what all Christians are supposed to be. David is the anointed king. We are anointed in Christ. God might place us around those who are weighed down in spirit. It's not our job to figure out, well, how much of that is psychological versus what's their walk with God like and this and that. We don't, that's above our pay grade. Our job is to offer a space for grace and listening and care and support. That's a huge gift that we can give to each other. We know that God is light, 1 John says. In him there is no darkness at all. So we're not seeing God act in a way that is evil. But we are seeing God act here towards Saul in a way that is just. Again, God is bringing consequences to bear on this first king who is consistently resisting him and wants to lead the kingdom in how he sees fit. We also know that God does allow certain hardships in our lives to occur to shape either a new trajectory, open up new possibilities to change our hearts. The mystery of suffering is great. And so while the Bible does speak to the facts, for example, Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, so in all circumstances, good things, bad things, frustrating things, boring times, exciting times, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Again, there has to be a lot of sensitivity that we walk with when we seek to 
understand and apply those truths to our lives, and especially how we communicate those to other people. We want to recognize that sometimes hardships are there to grow people. We want to be careful not to be the person that names that for someone else in their life. Oh, I'm sure you're going through this, but like, don't worry, God's got it. It's like all for good. Even if we are correct in our assessment, that can come across as really dismissive, and it doesn't necessarily come across as caring and supportive. And so again, a lot of what we need to do is sensitize ourselves to recognize, yes, at the level of principle, God sometimes does allow difficult things into our lives. I was going to be blind by the time I was 11. Had to have my first corneal transplant by the time I was nine. Had a series of them through that. But I was given the space by a community of uh, Christians around me to discover oh, maybe God is using that to put to death certain things in my life and to bring to life other possibilities. I didn't have, when I showed up to my little Anglican church at 13 and 14, a bunch of people saying, oh, I know what's happening with your, with your eye. Like, I know why God's doing this. People were slow to speak. They were quick to listen. And that's what we want to offer those who are walking through times of darkness and suffering. It's not that there's never a place for a word, but especially if it's not prompted, if we're not being invited to speak into what do you think's going on? Um, what's your perspective in the situation? We always want to lead with just like David trying to provide some relief. Verse 18, one of the servants said, I have seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre or the harp. He's a brave man and he's a warrior. He speaks well. He's a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. And I love this part because it shows that probably unbeknownst to David, God has been raising David's profile as these attendants have been looking around. They find him. Again, there's no evidence in the text that David knows even that this has happened. But God has already raised David's profile, which to me, again, really good lesson for all of us, but especially uh, maybe for those of us who serve and give and... Um, love and care for others in ways that are often hidden by other people. This to me is a good reminder of the importance of staying faithful in little things, staying faithful when no one's watching, right? Being, being faithful not just when people's eyes are on you, but when you, it just is only God's eyes on you. And God is watching. And what we see here is God saw David's faithfulness. I'm anointed. Jesse's like, Okay, David, back to the fields. David doesn't say, do you know who you're talking to, Dad? He's like, yep, back to the fields. Be faithful, especially when no one's watching, because God is. And God, uh, as we're going to see in David's life, God establishes kings. God raises up. Our job is to be faithful right now. Our job isn't to figure out the blueprint, the plan, to be anticipating 20 steps ahead. Our job is to do the next right thing and trust that God will vindicate the ways that we are seeking to honor him and bless others. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. Now we know that the story continues, but what I want you to try and imagine 
is this story is being read to you for the first time. What happens to your stomach when we get to verse 21 where it says, David came to Saul and entered his service? Based on what we've read in the previous chapters, what's your reaction? Is it excitement? Shake your head, say, no, Jeff, it's not excitement. No. What's, what would be, if you're kind of following the narrative, if you're getting swept up in it, what's the emotional reaction here? You're kind of fear, you're, you're scared. Samuel, in the last chapter, when God said, Saul's out, I'm going to send you to anoint another king, Samuel says, uh, we can't have Saul knowing that because he will kill me. And now Saul is putting David right under Saul's nose. To me, that is, like, narratively, that is crazy to me. Because you think, if, if, if God's chosen David, then he'd keep him as safe as possible. I mean, you'd isolate this guy. This guy's super important. He's the next big king. So we're going to have this whole team of people, and he's going to be, like, raised out in the middle of nowhere. And then when he's strong and powerful and has an army, then he'll come in and overthrow Saul. If you're reading this for the first time, you're like, what is God doing? This is absolutely insane. The threat level is massive here. And again, sometimes what we think is, if God's really at work in my life, if God's really guiding me and God's really leading me, one of the evidences is that it would feel safe and comfortable and everything would just be like, oh, this is good. This is, there'd be kind of a, a cocoon of God's blessing. And yet what we see here is David is you know, literally being sent into the lion's den. He's being sent into the fiery furnace. And that's a good reminder to me and hopefully to us that if God is in something, that doesn't mean we're just going to move towards greater and greater in safety, greater and greater comfort, greater and greater prosperity, however, however we understand that. But we are going to be positioned by God to be an influence and an impact. Then Saul said, sent word to Jesse, and he said, I want you to allow David to remain with me because I'm pleased with him. He's awesome. I like his music. He's a good armor bearer. He's just a good support to me. And then verse 23, whenever the Spirit of God came on Saul, sorry, the Spirit from God, the evil Spirit from God, came upon Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. <sighs> Relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil Spirit would leave him. Okay, here's some three quick observations. The first is, Often before we're invited into leadership, generally speaking, before God positions us into places of leadership, and especially within his church and within his kind of strategic kingdom initiatives as he places us in different workplaces and sets us in families and in different communities, there is a time of preparation. That there is a time of suffering, even if that suffering is just sort of boredom. It's David in the field and like, Really? Have I not graduated from this thing yet? Like, come on, I, 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 I'm anointed to be king. I'm ready to be king. I'm excited to be king. But this is really, really important. David has been chosen to be the next king, but he begins his training through serving. First in the middle of nowhere with sheep, but then even when he comes into the king's court, you would have think, well, if David's going to step onto the court for the first time, it's going to be as the, as the new king, as a coronation. Nope. He's going to be an armor bearer. He's going to carry some burdens over here. He's going to wash some things over here. He's going to get food. He's going to play music. David gets his training in what it means to rule in God's kingdom, 
by serving. And for anybody in a leadership position, if you are a Christian, you just have to remind yourself of that again and again. You just have to understand your position, your power, your influence is about um, a gift that God has given you to steward and you are called to leverage that as best as you know how and you're going to make mistakes and you learn and pivot from evil ways and wrong ways and immature ways of using that power and you begin leveraging that power to serve and help other people in that role. It's not to lord it over other people. It's to come underneath and offer care and support. And that's often what preparation for leadership in the kingdom of God looks like. Service, support, and healing in the different manifestations. And that's important because you you need to know for us as a church, every few years we have new people on our site leadership team, and one of the questions that I ask is, and I try and lead us into, is who do we see doing these things in our church? Serving, often places that are invisible, supporting other people, and offering healing to others, whether that's a listening ear, care, following up, making connections. It's easy to think, oh, the leaders are the people in the church who are tall, loud voice, confident, don't mind being up in front of the lights. Uh, Again, movers and shakers, we talked about this, the the, the things that the, the nations look at as, oh, that's an awesome leader. And God says, those, none of those things are necessarily bad, but they shouldn't be the foundation that you're looking for. The foundation that you should be looking for is a heart that wants to serve, that a heart that really learns to love, a heart that is sensitive to me, sensitive to other people, and that is, there's a, a fundamental integrity there, that there is a desire to grow in that kind of service. Number two, and this is for all of us, but maybe especially the young people, because that Uh, maps onto David's experience here. Be faithful in the development of your talents, skills, and gifts. We just arrive, and David knows how to play the lyre, the harp, and he's been doing it out in the middle of nowhere. Sheep are his only audience. He's not getting any claps like Marion and Carrie got this morning. He's just playing before God and for himself. And I'm sure there was not one day in David's young life where he thought, you know what? I bet you God's going to take this meager talent of mine, amplify it, and then use it to position me to be the next king of Israel. I mean, that, there's absolutely no way that crosses David's mind. He doesn't even really see a, probably a use for the talent other than blessing God in private worship and maybe his family, maybe he's asked, hey, David, play us a tune during you know, dinner kind of thing. You don't know why God has placed the gifts in you, the passions, the skills, the talents, and gifts that he has. Artistic, athletic, um, the, the musical gifts. You don't know. And you can't know and you can't anticipate. But what this passage should teach you is that God will often use that gift powerfully in your life later. So be faithful now. Be faithful now to put in the work, to put in the time, to practice. You don't have to have a sense of, oh, God's calling me to do something big with this. It's just keep showing up, keep practicing. There are lives only you can touch. There are places only 
you can be positioned by God into to be a positive influence and you don't know how God is going to use your talents to move you into that place. And again, that, that, that's across the board for all of us. But I really want young people to hear that. That when it looks like no one's seeing it, when there's no applause, sometimes when it's boring and it's a grind and sometimes you feel stuck and you're tempted to give up, keep practicing, keep cultivating these gifts. They've been entrusted to you. You're not responsible to make yourself great through them. You're simply responsible to steward them and work as hard as you can to be the best that you can at those things. One of our affirmations as a covenant church is that we believe in the whole mission of the church. And that means that we as the people of God have a unique, complex, powerful mission that branches out through all kinds of different skill sets. The church isn't just full of people who teach the Bible. It's full of people who play music and can mentor kids on soccer teams and can teach and can uh, serve. And the way that service is expressed is like lim- almost limitless because when we surrender our imaginations and our gifts and say, God, how can I use this to bless this community? Sometimes we think of those things as like, that's nice, but what happens here on Sunday, that's like the real ministry because it's like prayer and the word. And these are central. These are important. But part of why it's important is that we go into the word to discover, oh, God uses David powerfully to bring relief to Saul. How? Through David's preaching? No, through his music. And so it's important for us as I think of... um, yeah, people come to mind, maybe I don't want to embarrass them, I, I won't say, but people in our community who I see taking steps of faith to try art, to take uh, creative risks. And yes, it's not like every time you do that, you're attaching a Bible verse to it or whatever. That's not the point. We don't have to force our faith onto the things that we're doing. We give it over as an offering to God and say, use it, God. And that's so, so awesome. And God does huge things like that. God breaks down walls through your gifts and talents and skills, that he's not going to use my preaching to break down and break through and into people's lives. So we all have to be faithful with the, I'll be faithful with my gifts and my skills. I'll try and grow those, and you do the same. But what you're not allowed to do is to say, oh, well, I don't have gifts like this person or like Jeff, or I'm only at this level, and oh, I, 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 can't, I can't anticipate and see how God can use it. That's not for you to, that's not for you to say. You're just called to say, who has God made me? What are my passions? How am I shaped as a person? And then, even if it's just every day, say, God, use this. I don't even know how you can use it, but use it today somehow to touch, touch someone else's life. And lastly, this passage uh, for me, and man, this has been one of the hardest lessons for me over the pandemic. It's a lesson that I know, but is not in my bones yet. And that is the lesson that we, we really do live by faith, not by sight. Or another translation says, We walk by faith, not by sight. If you can try and put yourself in David's shoes, there's nothing about the events of this chapter that makes sense to him. He's not expecting them. When they happen, he's not really given an indication of what's next. He's really being (laughs) fed these little breadcrumbs by the Spirit of God. Sometimes weeks or months pass in between them, and he doesn't see a plan. Like, it's not like David is playing the harp 
in front of Saul and he's like, oh, I, I, I'm going to be the next king. Like again, like read the room. Like David's like, I hope, this, I hope he likes this song, otherwise I'm going to get head chopped off. Like, which song do you like, Saul? Oh, play me anything. No, I prefer you pick. Just give me, give me the one that you love the most. Right? I mean, David doesn't, he has to have a radical sense of, I just got to trust God. And I know for me over this uh, pandemic and some of the attendant issues, man, it's been difficult to trust that even when I can't trace God's hand in situations, I got to trust. And everything in me is wanting to collapse sometimes into uh, anxiety or trying to take things over myself and, and make it work. I come back to stories like this and I say, okay, how do I do that? How do I release that impulse, which is rooted in my own fear, my own insecurity? How do I learn to give that over to God, to allow God to expose things in me so that I can walk faithfully with him? David doesn't see God's hand at work in his life through all these details. I mean, maybe he's aware of it, but again, he doesn't see where this story is going. And often, that's the perspective that we have. We know that God's involved in our life. We know God is walking with us. We often don't feel it. We move through life and it's pretty normal. We're out in the fields tending sheep. And we're playing the lyre and the harp and it's like, yep, like we're not getting any invites to play the Super Bowl halftime show. It's just, that's it. And, and yet, we're still called to trust that God is at work. Because stories like this show us that God is at work. But our sense of God being at work is, is immaterial to that. Like God is at work whether or not we sense it. And that's what it means that we walk by faith, not by sight, not by, oh, I can see where this is going. Oh, I totally feel it. Oh, God spoke to me today and said, yeah, this is exactly how it's going to go. Uh, no, it's like we're not given a lot of information. We have to walk and learn to trust David has to walk through these circumstances to a greater or lesser extent in the dark. And that's often how we have to walk through circumstances. God often cannot show us the whole plan because we'd either run away in terror or we would try and take hold of it and say, oh, if that's a plan, great. I, I can figure out how to do it myself. Thank you very much, God. So God has to deal with us in secret. And so if you're moving or you're feeling like you're not moving and you're wondering where God is, God is active. God is doing something. But like David, you're only going to be able to really identify it when you look backwards and say, oh, wow, that was one of the loneliest, hardest times of my life, but I can see what God was doing in retrospect. And that's why you need to occasionally slow down and just review your own faith walk and your own faith story. Because in the present moment, we're often not sensitized to the fact that God is at work in the moment. And so what you have to do is you have to look back and say, well, look at all these other times that I didn't think that God was at work, but look at how he moved everything towards something good and redemptive. And maybe it wasn't easy, but I can see that God was doing something. And he was at work powerfully. And when you look back and you say, well, he was there then, so I can by faith trust that he's here now. And I don't need to rely on a sense of his presence 
I'm just going to continue to be faithful in the little things, do the next right thing. In the Old Testament, you have these typologies. You have people who reflect and mirror a type, a template of a kind of human being. Or in this case, Saul uh, is a typology of of a corrupt and immature king. And David is a typology of not just a good king and God's faithful king, but he's actually kind of a typology that leads us towards saying he's going to be a bit of a pattern that Jesus is going to perfect. He's kind of a preview of the great king to come. And that's important because you can pull out of the story at 30,000 feet and say, oh, there's a little picture of the gospel here, the central truth of Christianity. Like, in the big, big picture, we're all like Saul. We're all the king wanting to be king or queen on our own lives. And God is saying, I want you to serve me, rule under me. I've given you authority. You're like, no, I, I want to take it for myself. I want to live on my terms. Thank you very much. We're sitting on the throne of our hearts. And yet God allows just enough hardship, just enough suffering, suffering to get our attention, but also mercifully brings people into our lives that provide relief and that point us back towards him. And this music that David plays to Saul, this is to what comes to us, the music of the gospel, the heart, the heart line of Christianity, that, the, that for those who have turned their lives over to Jesus, it doesn't matter how much you've rebelled. It doesn't matter how much you've resisted God. It doesn't matter how much you have settled uh, for a lifestyle of sin and all of the ways that that was creating disorientation and disruption in your life and brokenness. And even for those with cold hearts or who are locked in prisons of their own making, you can actually find freedom and relief. There is a king who doesn't come to punish and judge you, but comes to play a song of love and salvation over you. And if you respond to that song, he can lead you out from a place of a small, increasingly isolated, self-serving, self-centered existence and you can step into what is supposed to be your calling. You can be given a new start. We are not called to be the king in our lives. We are called to serve the king with our lives. And so let this story hit us at the most personal level. Step off the throne of your own heart, lay down your crown and take up your cross. And let Jesus reign in your heart by faith. Let his song of love and grace and forgiveness and new life soothe and heal your soul and lead you forward into eternal life. Let's pray. God, you are good. And as we uh, celebrate you,